0: I could see my breath. As the cold pierced through my corduroy pants, my knockoff Sperry's were not made for the snow. They were made for the sand. I had cold feet, but I wasn't turning back. I had Sarah by the hand. I had a spot picked out where a tree fell in the woods. I was on my way to ask Sarah to sit on that tree. I was on my way to ask Sarah to be my wife. I planned for it to go down on this day, her birthday, I was in a Canadian thicket with my Canadian love about to give her a Canadian diamond. I dropped to one knee, looked her in the eye and asked, Will you marry me? I waited for the response. The wait was the hardest part, but also the best part. It was the hardest because in the wait I was vulnerable. It was the best because in the wait I could dream. Dream about seeing her walk down the aisle. Dream about living in the same house. Dream about moving to a warmer climate. I I waited, waited in suspense. I read a lot of marriage proposals this week. One in particular caught my attention. Jenna recounted her marriage proposal. It was on her birthday by a candlelit dinner at a fancy restaurant. The waiter brought over champagne and a jug of ice. After pouring the glass, there in the champagne was the ring. She was actually unimpressed. Could her boyfriend really propose in such a cliché fashion? He waited for the response and Jenna gathered her thoughts. She actually let him know her disappointment with the predictability of it all. He attempted to defend himself by saying, it was my mom's idea. So fail fell number one. Never let your mother-in-law plan the proposal. Eventually Jenna smiled, said yes, and fished the ring out of the champagne. She bent forward to kiss this old Prince Charming and her hair fell into the candle. With all the product in the hair, what happened next was akin to striking a match by a can of gasoline. She lost half of her hair before Prince Charming put it out by throwing a jug of ice water on her head. It was quite a scene. The cook even came out and was laughing at him. We've all seen proposals go south. Perhaps you've seen the one that happened at the halftime of an NBA game. He takes her to half court, the cameras surround them, 40,000 people cheering, Jumbotron showing their faces. He drops to one knee. Her hands go to her mouth. In shock, he pops the question. There's an inevitable wait. This one quickly turned uncomfortable. She shakes her head no. She runs off the court. She had cold feet. One guy pretended to have died and planned the entire funeral home visitation with him lying in the coffin. With his girlfriend sobbing as she stood by his casket, he suddenly sat up and asked her to marry him. After she stopped screaming... She slapped him, and then she said yes. I think the girl needs help. Right, another guy tied the ring to a red helium balloon. He gave the balloon to his girlfriend. She didn't notice the ring, and then he dropped to one knee. He said, she said and in her excitement, you know, yes. She screamed yes, and then she let go of the balloon. $5,000 floated away. You can watch this video on YouTube. He's chasing the balloon. She's like, what's going on? Bad. These proposals went way wrong. I read after Stephen Davy this week to see if there was any help for guys on how to do it right. He found one guy who pulled out all the stops. This guy lived in a different state from his girlfriend, so he mailed plane tickets to her. When she arrived, a limo was waiting for her as planned, and the music in the limo was a compilation of their favorite songs. She was taken to a name-brand store where the rack of dresses and shoes were waiting for her. She was able to choose her favorite get dressed, and was driven to a salon for a three-hour treatment, massage, pedicure, manicure, hairstyling, makeup. She was then driven to the entrance of a resort where a horse and buggy were waiting for her. As she was driven around the small lake, more than 100 candles lit the path to a red carpet where a violinist began to play a song this guy had written. While she walked up the red carpet, he appeared at the top of the stairs and began to sing the song he had composed. When she got to the top of the stairs, he knelt down on one knee and a light board behind him blazed the words, Will you marry me? He then stood and sang the finale to the song, backed up by a 45-piece orchestra. When she said yes, fireworks exploded in the sky above them. This is not a television show. This was an average dude. He planned everything. This guy makes me sick. (laughs) Here's what we learn from all of this. If you're going to propose, you need a plan, you need to execute the plan, and you need to have some idea about the results. You need a plan. You need it to be romantic. I shared with Sarah my favorite expositor's proposal. His name's Tony Morita. He took his wife Kimberly to the Arlington National Cemetery, filled with people who laid down their lives for, for their country. And he said, Kimberly... I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And he dropped to one knee. He quoted Psalm 34. Will you come and magnify the Lord with me in marriage? I told that to Sarah. And I'm like, look at how much theology is in that proposal. She just shook her head. She said, if you took me to a graveyard, it wouldn't have been good. I'm it <laughs> so we've got a plan. Then execute the plan. All right. Avoid helium. Blow out the candle. Don't listen to your mother. And then have some ideas about the results. Like drop a hint in advance so she will not get cold feet and run away. One of the most fascinating proposals in the history of humanity happened 3,000 years ago. It actually breaks down into those three. The plan, the execution, and the results. Let's look first at the plan. For seven weeks, Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's barley harvest and wheat harvest. Each day bringing home tons of food for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. They now have enough food for a year. Harvest is ending and life is about to resume to its normal flavor. The flavor for them was marginalized in the community, working yourself to the bone with no hope of it becoming easier, facing another year as outsiders. Through the first two chapters of the book, Naomi has been preoccupied with three people, me, myself, and I. She had turned inward, consumed by grief and bitterness. But that changed during harvest. Her hard face melted into a, a clever smile. She could only think of her present grief before, but now she can actually plan for the future. See, when you're in grief, it's hard to think about the future. We see in the text her mind turning, planning, scheming, maneuvering. She goes to her daughter-in-law. She says in verse 2, Is not Boaz our relative? Now, I realize in today's culture when you say so-and-so is your cousin, that doesn't immediately set up a romance. Unless, of course, you're from West Virginia. But in the Jewish literature, this phrase sets up a romance. Since Naomi quit moping around the house, she's been scrolling her Ancestry.com account, and she's traced the lineage from Boaz to her late husband, Elimelech. Boaz was part of her extended family. This Rich businessman could change their lives. He could marry Ruth, restore their family's name, take them from being marginalized in Bethlehem to nearly being idolized in Bethlehem. Now, Ruth was obviously a stranger to these customs. She was a Moabitess, not a Jew. Naomi had to unpack the kinsman redeemer custom to Ruth multiple times before it ever clicked. Ruth, it's a law that God gave us to protect the widows of the land. This is a, this is a good thing. In fact, I, I've been Googling the schedule, and, and guess whose turn it is down at the threshing floor? Ruth responds, let me guess, Boaz. Yes. And this is your last chance before Boaz will leave the fields and will not return until next year. So time is of the essence. And, and notice, notice what Naomi tells Ruth in verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, All that you say, I will do. All right, here's where it gets difficult. These verses are filled with sexual overtones. Put on your best clothes. Go in the night. Once he's drunk, uncover his feet. Lie down. This is just not something that you tell your daughter to do, is it? The Old Testament readers' minds are just racing. It's it's getting a little dicey in Bethlehem. It appears Ruth is about to turn up the temperature down at the barn. Naomi says, wash yourself. The Hebrew verb indicates a full three-hour treatment. Extreme makeover. Moabite edition. Ruth got a pedicure and a manicure, her hairstyle. The Mary Kay lady came in and did her color chart. Then she says, anoint yourself. This literally means in, in, the, Greek, in the Hebrew, Ruth put on perfume. And you ask Kyle, did they really have perfume back then? Listen, uh, 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, the queen of Egypt is sending scouting parties all around the known world to bring her the latest perfumes for her collection. So yes, ladies have always loved perfume, and Ruth still had some of her old faithful brands. Jay Vernon McGee used to say that her favorite perfume was called Midnight in Moab. <laughs> Naomi continues, Ruth. Once you've done all of that, I want you to put on the tight red dress and the black high heels, then lay down beside Boaz, and he'll tell you what to do next. Yeah, yeah, I bet he will. <laughs> what, what am I reading? It rings of a cheesy romance novel with risky pictures on the front. These are some of the shadiest verses in the Bible. We have conspiracy, manipulation, and even seduction. It's awkward reading it in a mixed company. You can imagine how difficult it was for Matthew to choose songs in between the readings. What what songs do you sing after reading a text like this? I I can think of a few Motown songs, a Clarence Carter song, but what worship songs? My wife told me that there's a Texas version of Ruth chapter 3 and it's sung by Reba McIntyre it's called Fancy. (laughs) I want you to notice the similarities as I read the lyrics. Yes, I'm reading the lyrics. (laughs) I remember it all very well looking back. It was the summer I turned 18. We lived in a one-room run-down shack on the outskirts of New Orleans. We didn't have money for food or rent. To say the least, we were hard-pressed. Then mama spent every last penny we had to buy me a dancing dress. Mama washed and combed and curled my hair, and she painted my eyes and lips. Then I stepped into a satin dancing dress that had a split on the side clean up to my hips. It was a red velvet trim, and it fit me good. Standing back from the looking glass, there stood a woman where a half-grown kid had stood. Then it gets into the chorus. She says, here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down. The song continues, Mama dabbed a little bit of perfume on my neck and she kissed my cheek. Then I saw the tears welling up in her troubled eyes when she started to speak. She looked at a pitiful shack and then she looked at me and took a ragged breath. She said, your paws run off and I'm real sick and the baby's going to starve to death. She handed me a heart-shaped locket that said, to thine own self be true. And I shivered as I watched a roach crawl across the toe of my high-heeled shoe. It sounded like somebody else that was talking, asking, Mama, what should I do? She said, just be nice to the gentleman, Fancy, and they'll be nice to you. Goes back into the chorus. Here's your one chance, Fancy, don't let me down. Sounds like a real healthy family environment, doesn't it? Forgive me for the mammoth quotation, but it appears we have another Fancy on our hands. And her name is Ruth. Those of you who are not Christians... What's going on in your minds right now? You don't see this as a beautiful Cinderella story. You see this as something that should be reported to the police. Well, it's time for me to earn my title as your pastor teacher. Is this text really saying what we think it's saying? Or is this our Western oversexed mind reading into the passage? When Naomi tells Ruth to change clothes, there's more going on than first meets the eye. She's been wearing a burlap sack. She's been wearing the clothes of a grieving widow. So the thought here is take off your grieving widow clothes and put on your best clothes. And if you're picturing a ballroom dress, you've missed it. They just walked 50 miles in the desert seven weeks ago because they were homeless. So her best clothes are still horrible. There's actually an interesting parallel over in 2 Samuel 12 verse 20 King David does the exact same thing. He washes himself, he puts oil on, and then he puts on his best clothes. He does that to signify that he has left behind a time of mourning over his son, his child who had passed away. So Ruth's change of clothes is a transition from mourning to, okay, I'm moving on now. It's time to put myself out there. This still doesn't explain the sexual innuendo of uncovering his feet. When I read this, it it just sounded weird to my germaphobe ears. I'm seeing these commercials about toe fungus, and I have real health concerns about Ruth uncovering these dirty feet. The term feet is sometimes used in Scripture as a euphemism for male genitals. Exodus 4, Judges 3, 1 Samuel 24. So some say that Naomi is telling Ruth to sneak up on the semi-drunken Boaz, take the man's sheet off of him, lie down against his lap, and then just see what happens. Actually, one of my favorite commentary comment, commentators believes this, Sinclair Ferguson. He thinks this whole thing played out exactly like Reba's country song. But I think there's two main problems if you hold to that view. First, the word feet is also used to refer to female sexual organs in Deuteronomy 28 and Ezekiel 16. Secondly, the majority, the majority of the use of the Hebrew term translated for us feet actually means a person's feet. And I'm not allergic to seeing faults with people in the Bible. If I thought the Hebrew pointed to something going down, I would tell you. I just don't think it does. I think this is a holy and righteous thing Ruth is doing. She's excited about the possibility of remarriage. She's found this Boaz. She loved her first husband, but she's missed the comfort of a man, a godly man. She misses praying with her husband. She thinks this meeting with Boaz is of the Lord. So she leaves the house. She's headed to the threshing floor. She's skipping and she's singing. I'm going to the threshing floor and I'm going to get married. You can't see it in English, but when you take years of Hebrew, she's, she's there singing in the text. All right, so you have the plan, and then secondly, you have the execution. She did just as her mother commanded and went to the threshing floor. And, and let, me, let me paint a picture of what this threshing floor looked like. After all the barley and, and wheat were bundled in the field, they were carried manually or by cart to a flat, large, open space of exposed bedrock or hardened clay. They would first separate the husk from the grain by beating the husk with sticks or either crushing it under cow hoofs. Then they would take long pitchforks and toss the barley up into the air. That's why the threshing floor was on the side of the hill open to winds on every side. And it was done in the evening when the sea breezes blew the strongest. So the wind took away the chaff and the good stuff fell to the floor. Threshing floors could also be pretty seedy places. It was a place filled with blue-collar dudes on payday. It was a celebration. It was a party. A time of tallying up the total income for the season. In fact, Hosea chapter nine, verse one mentions ladies scantily dressed showing up. Sex for hire was extremely common for these first century, first century sailors coming off the proverbial ship. But the author has already hinted to Boaz's character, so we know he's not involved in any of this. There's no indication that Boaz was ever married. We're not sure. Mark Dever thinks he was a widow. We don't know if Boaz was tall, dark, and handsome, or 5'9", white, skinny, receding hairline, and spiked hair, which would be much better, let's just be honest. (laughs) By the way, there's nothing here to imply that Boaz was getting drunk. He's like me after going to a Brazilian steakhouse. His stomach is filled with good food and good drink, and he's in a food coma. He's going to settle in for the night. I asked the question why would, a, why would a rich man settle in for the night? All the work is finished. Well, first, because animals could eat the grain, secondly, someone could steal the grain. In fact, Midianites had made a habit of invading the land and stealing the crops. Boaz stays the night to protect his prophet. So he finds a secluded place away from all the partying guys and he lays his head down. The entire time, Ruth is watching this unfold. She's like a ninja in the night. She's hanging from the barn rafters. Once he's asleep, she's going to uncover his feet. She's been paying close attention because Naomi told her, Make sure you don't do this to the wrong guy. You don't want to uncover someone else's feet and find out. Well, those legs are too hairy. That's, that's not the guy. Those legs are shaved. That's definitely not the guy. You can almost hear Ruth's heart beating as she watches from the rafters. Boaz begins to doze off. She thinks to herself, okay, he's asleep. He's snoring. I'm coming down. And just then he kind of rolls over. So she waits a little longer. A few minutes later, he's definitely asleep now. She shimmies down and uncovers his feet. The cool breeze on his bare legs caused a little stir. He has cold feet. He sits up to cover the feet with a blanket. He opens his eyes and for a split second he sees two eyes looking back at him. He's quite startled. 3,000 years ago there were no lights in the barn. He knew what Ruth looked like but it was dark so he couldn't recognize her. So he asked the question, who are you? This is actually not the first time in the scriptures that a man woke up to find a woman next to him. Adam went to sleep Woke up to discover he had surgery and he was now a married man. Jacob went to sleep. Not, not this Jacob here. He's, a, he's our pastoral intern. We were reading to our kids about Jacob and how Jacob was a liar and a deceiver in the scriptures. And one of our kids was devastated. Like, I didn't know Jacob was a liar. We it's a different Jacob. So uh, tell your kids this Jacob is not, not our Jacob here. Jacob went to sleep, woke up to discover he was married to the wrong woman. There are three ways for Boaz to respond to Ruth. He could first take advantage of Ruth, he could wink his eye and give her a little Joey Tribbiani quote How you doing? This was in the middle of the times of the judges. Sexual immorality was rampant, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So he could take advantage of Ruth, or he could scorn Ruth. Go home. I'm trying to sleep. What, are you working the streets now like you used to work the fields? Or he could honor Ruth, listen to her, give her time to explain what's going on. Is there significance in Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet? Read commentaries all week. Firm answers are elusive, but apparently it's a nonverbal custom for requesting marriage. A way for a woman to gracefully initiate a proposal. This was Ruth's marriage proposal. There's no golden sunset, no bottle of champagne, no rose petals or candles, just a heap of grain and some dirty, nasty feet. This isn't seduction. This isn't fancy, don't let me down. She's proposing. And I don't want you to miss what happened here. A Moabite woman just proposed to an Israelite man. A worker in the field just proposed to the owner of the field. A younger person just proposed to an older person. This is breaking all the rules. So we wait with our ears to the ground to hear what Ruth has to say. And she speaks in the end of verse 9. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now what does it mean to spread your wings over a person? This is not an invitation for intimacy. The word for wing can also be translated garment. Spreading your garment over a woman was a common ancient Near Eastern custom used in Israel for a man intending to marry that woman. See, when you, when you put the garment over the woman, it was taking responsibility of her care and her protection. Actually, the Hebrew word for wings is the word kanaf. It's translated for us, wings. They've actually used that word in conversation before. Boaz used kanaf while he was praying for Ruth in chapter 2. I pray that that God will spread his kanaf over you, his wings over you. So, So in this proposal, Ruth is effectively whispering to Boaz, Do you remember prayer you made on my behalf a few months ago in the field. Would you like to be the answer to that prayer? While she waits for his answer, she dreams what it would be like to walk down the aisle and see him at the end, what it would be like to lay in his arms every night, a good man, a godly man. Boaz eventually responds to the proposal at the end of verse 10. The text says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So when Boaz here is referring to Ruth's first kindness, he's referring to her care of her mother-in-law Naomi. Then he refers to her last kindness, which is better. Boaz is saying, you are so kind to marry a man like me when there are so many eligible bachelors in the city. Boaz told her that as you read on, that he effectively loves her and would be thrilled to marry her. And then he seals it with the promise of food. He, he didn't have a ring right now. She caught him in the middle of the night. So he seals it with the promise of food. Here's a, here's a taco. <laughs> and then in, in verse 13, notice what he says. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Kids say things like cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. We say things like, I, I swear my mom's grave. Boaz is claiming the ultimate foundation for his oath when he says, As God is alive, I'm making this promise to you. I'll marry you. I'll redeem you. He said yes at midnight. Scan your Bible. There's lots of things happened at midnight. At midnight, God slew the Egyptian firstborn. At midnight, Samson escaped the ambush at Gaza by removing the city gates. It's actually a New Testament parable of a bridegroom coming at midnight. It's actually a little teaser. At the midnight cry, we'll be going home. Ruth, in fact, is almost home. She's proposed marriage and Boaz said yes. but, But just then... Just when we're ready to wrap this whole thing up and and sign it happily ever after, a snag shows up and has potential to ruin the whole thing. A fly in the ointment, an obstacle in the road, a wrench to a happy ending. Boaz remembers that according to the law, there's another kinsman redeemer who has first dibs. What will Boaz do now? Ignore it? Manipulate the situation? Do what he wants anyway? He tells Ruth, no, we've obeyed God this far. And we will obey him to the end. We need to work through God's law before we make this official. See, that would not happen today. In today's culture, a man would have, would have hired a lawyer to sue the other guy for his rights. He would have found a counselor or a psychologist to tell him, follow your heart. All that matters is if you are happy. I mean, after all, you can't argue with love. Let me break this down as simply as I can. Boaz would rather remain single and lose the love of his life than to disobey the word of God. That's a man. It's dark. It's late. It's too dangerous for Ruth to walk back home. He tells her to stay the night and he will figure out the next steps in the morning. It's picturing in my mind here, if this were a radio drama, what the night looked like. The stars are beautiful overhead. He loves her. She loves him. They are alone. The mood is perfect. And he stops it. For the sake of righteousness, he does not touch her. What a man. What a woman. THE MOOD OF OUR CULTURE IS, IF IT FEELS GOOD, DO IT. AND TO HELL WITH YOUR VICTORIAN GUILT PRODUCING tyrannical PRINCIPLES OF CHASTITY AND FAITHFULNESS. FRIENDS, LET THE MORNING DAWN ON YOUR PURITY. DON'T BE LIKE THE WORLD. BE LIKE Boaz. BE LIKE RUTH. PROFOUNDLY IN LOVE. POWERFUL IN SELF-CONTROL. AND COMMITTED TO RIGHTEOUSNESS. THE PLAN, THE EXECUTION, THIRDLY, THE RESULTS. If Ruth left the threshing floor at midnight, she would appear to be a woman of the night. and the town gossips they would, they would have a field day in Bethlehem. So Boaz wasn't having that. He says, stay the night. He's concerned about her. Concerned about her reputation. Concerned about her safety. We don't live in a world where men care much about women's safety or integrity. He did. In the morning, before it was light enough for her reputation to be unfairly tarnished, Boaz gave her six measures of food. One commentator said it was, it was six measures of ephah, which could be 200 pounds. Another one said sias, That means she could carry 75 pounds. Ian Deguid, which has an excellent commentary on the book of Ruth, he says it's 80 pounds. And we know it's heavy because Boaz had to literally hoist it up on Ruth. So Ruth is going to have to rely on her P90X workout and get beast mode to get this stuff home. But she's going. Boaz told Ruth in verse 17... Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Could that be significant? Have you seen the word empty before in the book of Ruth? It immediately takes our mind back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 21. When Naomi came from Moab with Ruth by her side, and what does she say? I went away full, but the Lord, the Lord has brought me back, what? Empty. God says, "I'm not going to leave you empty-handed." This is another little reminder from God. I don't leave my children empty for long. I supply. When you feel empty, alone, when it seems like God is far from you, He may just be setting the stage for the greatest display you have ever seen of His faithfulness to you, Christian. For all of eternity, you will never, ever be empty again. He has staked His glory on providing for you. Providing for your soul. Well, Naomi's been a a nervous wreck. She's had quite a restless night waiting for Ruth to return. There's no such thing as text messaging. So Ruth couldn't check in with little updates here and there. Naomi's been floor pacing, constantly peeking out the blinds. Finally, she sees Ruth walking home. And this is not a walk of shame. This is a walk of hope. She yells, Ruth, did Boaz say yes? How did the proposal go? Ruth comes, unpacks the details of the night before. She receives the six measures of grain. Boaz wanted me to send this to you so I would not come back to you empty. She's immediately reminded of what she said seven weeks ago. The Lord has made me empty and it clicks. God will provide for me. Then Naomi, having received the Lord's message loud and clear, she actually gives excellent advice. Spirit-directed wisdom. She says in verse 18, Wait. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. In other words, Boaz isn't going to fool around. Mark my words. He's going to get everything wrapped up today. He will not have cold feet. Sit tight and wait. It's out of our hands, but not God's. We've done all we can. Now it's God's turn. Let's wait. See what he does. I only have two applications today. That's it. First application is this. Waiting is the hardest part, but it's the best part. The curtains in chapter three close on two women in need of an heir, sitting in their home, waiting. They're hopeful, but uncertain how everything will turn out. It's the longest day of their lives, jumping up at the sound of every passing cart. Ruth's sitting there realizing that in the next 24 hours, she's going to find out who her husband's going to be. She'd love for it to be Boaz. But it could be this other guy. She has to wait. Does anyone here like to wait for something important? Are there any patient people hearing me? I don't think so. Frankly, this is my ongoing challenge in life. I don't like to wait. And perhaps it's yours as well. And the text is saying, wait while your Redeemer goes to work. Ruth can rest because Boaz is not. Ruth can wait because Boaz will not. One author wrote about the early days in his life when when as a little boy he would curl up in the back of his family car as his father drove back to their hometown through the night. He said, I felt so safe tucked back there with dad in the driver's seat. However, sometimes his grandmother would be with them and she would sit on the edge of the front seat instructing every five minutes. you've, You've seen ladies do this. Every car that came their way, she would say, Watch the side of the road there. Be careful of driving coming up next to us, don't drive so fast. The author goes on to write, I'm convinced my grandmother never enjoyed the ride. Why? Because she didn't trust my father. And because she couldn't trust his driving, she couldn't rest in the journey. I love the way the author summarizes this story. Grandmother and I both reached our destination. And at the same time. But one of us got there with frazzled nerves. While the other arrived happy and rested. I was learning to rest in my father's care. Naomi did not give Ruth this advice, this counsel to wait because it was easy to apply and easy to obey. Our response to the difficulty of our circumstances is directly related to the depth of our confidence in our Redeemer. How are you waiting? For that phone call? For that acceptance letter? For that doctor's report? For that invitation, that contract, that delivery, that arrival, that resolution. We need a fresh vision of the care, concern, management, and ministry our Redeemer accomplishes without any of our help. The length of time you're waiting may be longer than a day, longer than what Ruth faced. But the longer the wait, it only deepens the sense of joy when the Redeemer finally arrives to take you home. And don't miss this. Ruth can do nothing. She is powerless to redeem herself. The law can only reveal to her the condition that she's in and the total dependency she must have upon her Redeemer. And friends, you are no different. Christ alone is capable of meeting the conditions of the law that bind you to another family. He alone can pay the price of redemption. Take upon himself your debt and bring you into his chosen family as a spiritual bride. Waiting is the hard part, but it's the best part. While you're waiting, just dream about what it's going to be like when your Redeemer makes it all fit together perfectly. Application number two. While you wait, you wait under God's wings. See, I spent an extended time at the beginning on proposals for this reason. All marriage proposals are just shadows to a greater reality. Road signs pointing to the ultimate proposal. We see that clearly in the text. The only place that I could find in the Old Testament where this phrase, spread your garment or spread your wings, existed was in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 8. In that passage, God is talking and he's describing Israel and by implication us, his children, as young women, that he will take as a bride. Nothing nothing sexual there. It's spiritual marriage. And I want you to to read the words of Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Do we have that slide? Let's throw that slide up. He says, I will spread my wing over you. Yes, I swore an oath to you. And entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine. When you were converted to Christ, God spread his wing, his garment over you. And he said, I will protect you. I will care for you. I will redeem you. See, as it turns out, Ruth is a little love story that is about a greater love story. The love of a redeemer... Not a cultural one in Israel, but a global one in heaven. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know. Thus saith the Lord. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church.